Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black. This episode means quite a lot to me. This is episode 100 of the Draft Deeper Podcast. I started this show a little over a year and a half ago, and I got to be honest, I didn't know that we would definitely get this far. Podcasts are, are not quite... They're, they're relatively easy to start, but in terms of maintaining and actually growing growing listenership, especially with such a niche area um, like the NBA draft, it's, it's not always the easiest to stand out amongst its peers. I guess that's how I'll phrase that. So this episode really means a lot to me. It, it truly, thank you so much, everyone out there listening to this podcast all the way up till now, including this episode. And episode 100, I got to do it big. I got to bring in a big guest. I'm honored today to have on Sam Vecini from The Athletic, host of the Game Theory Podcast. Sam, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? It's uh, it's good to be here. I'm very glad uh, that I get a chance to come on for such a momentous podcast in the history of this podcast. <laughs> It, like I said, it really does mean a lot to me, Sam, and, and, and you coming on. I, I, I got to give you some props before we really kick off the meat potatoes of this episode. You do such an incredible job with everything you do for the athletic, the coverage, the, the amount of basketball, the amount of basketball ground that you cover week to week between everything you do for the draft, everything you write about regarding the NBA. I put out a tweet that, that I did see that, that you liked a little earlier last week where I props to you and people like you who are able to cover both at such a high level. I try and keep up with as much of the draft doing all of this work for draft deeper as well as no ceilings as I possibly can. This draft, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, is definitely a little murky in the water. So it requires a lot more time on my end to dig deeper into some evaluations a little more so than I would be by this point in the year. So the fact, Sam, that, that you do the work that you do, I'm so honored to have you on. So just just props to you for everything you do. And if anybody isn't subscribed to the Game Theory Podcast, please go listen to Sam. He has on quite the catalog of guests each and every week. Him and Matt Penny, who do the draft coverage over there on Game Theory. You guys are one of my favorite listens. You have such chemistry, such energy. Truly, Sam, thank you again for all the work that you do to help promote the draft community and everything you do over at Game Theory. Yeah, that's, that's really nice. It's, it's much easier, I will say, when it is your job and when you uh, don't have a day job where this is actually <laughs> your day job, right? You have more time and more ability to... Uh, go out and actually, you know, watch games like I'll queuing up Alabama, Mississippi State after we're done and, you know, queuing that up at 10 a.m. in the morning in Australia. And it's much, much easier when that's going to be the case. So, uh, I, uh, I'm very appreciative of all the kind words, but it's, uh, you know, it's it's uh, I'm in a I'm in a very lucky position to where I get to do what I do. So because it's episode 100, I wanted to do something fun. That's really the goal of this podcast. I want to unwind a little bit, have some fun talking about the 2022 NBA draft, and what better way to do that than to kick it off with a little mock draft exercise. Um, Sam just did a mock draft podcast with Matt 
last week. It was an incredible listen. So if anybody in my audience hasn't listened to it yet, please go do so. But they did a really excellent job breaking down not just the lottery, but going all the way through the first round, all the way out to pick 30. I got to be honest, I, I told Sam before we got on air, no ceilings will be releasing our second mock draft of the week. Once we got to about pick 15, as we were sitting down yesterday doing the exercise, Sam, Sam and I recording this podcast on Monday, January 17th, it got pretty hard after pick 15. So I want to keep this light, keep it fun. I, for the most part, I think at least have figured out who like my top 14 to 16-ish guys are, and I feel pretty comfortable about my rankings up to this point, just in terms of the actual guys, maybe not necessarily having everything figured out in terms of what order. I haven't fully categorized everybody in a tier yet, but I feel pretty good about this selection of players. So I think this is going to be a great exercise to engage in with, with such a great guest to do it with. So before we jump in and do the first pick, Sam, I just want to get some of your general thoughts on where you're at with, with this 2022 draft class as a whole I kind of mentioned at the top some some of the 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 pain and some of the difficulties in actually trying to do a mock draft exercise because there's just so many unknowns with this draft class where are you kind of at on the process as a whole so far yeah I'm glad that you used the word unknown because I think that that's where I'm coming down on this class it's a tough one to project in large part not because they're just aren't going to be any good players that come out of this draft. It's because all of the players past a certain point, And I think that that point, frankly, is like number five or number six. Uh, past <laughs> a certain point, everyone is just a very, very flawed player. Uh, whenever you project them up to the NBA level next year. I don't think that next year's rookie class is going to come in and have the same impact for instance, that we've seen from the 2021 rookie class, mm -hmm. because you know, I, I think that there were a just better players. B there were more physically ready players. C there are better older players that I think were a bit more ready to come in and play an immediate role than what we've seen so far. So look, I, I'm not a huge fan of this 2022 <laughs> class. I've, I talk to teams and they ask me like, Hey, like, what do you, uh, what do you think of this class? And my response is, look, if you have a pick outside of 10, I would probably trade the pick. So like, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's hard. I think trying to come down to a specific targeted goal. Like when, when I look at the draft, you know, from a team perspective, uh, there are often like situations where I'm trying to target players, right? Like, yep. okay, this guy can be really good within our scheme. We think he's an undervalued asset within the context of this draft. I, I it, it's hard for me to find the uh, drastically undervalued prospect in this class. Like, I, I don't, I see like a couple of targets here and there, but. I, I don't know that I've got like a specific one either. So that, that makes it tough and it makes it a little bit less interesting for me to cover uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. But I, I am certainly trying to find more and more players as I go through. That was 
quite the perfect summation of the majority of my thoughts kind of through this process as well. The, the best part I thought about your podcast that you just did with, with Penny last week was as you guys were making picks, you were quite literally trying to sell each other on certain players as you were going yeah. through the picks. And I feel like that wouldn't always be the case in, with a class that you're much more comfortable about, even even to this point. I know it's still relatively early on in the process, but I don't feel like that that's a normal trend that, that you generally go through at this point. So maybe, maybe we're going to do a little bit of the same. I know that before we hopped on this podcast, you kind of have a list of guys that you feel should be selected in the lottery. And as we're sitting here kind of talking through some things, I kind of agree that that's how we should do the mock draft. I'm not going to use the, the little tankathon order that I had originally wanted to use. Let's go back and forth. Let's make picks one through 14 as we would make them. There are there there are so many unknowns, not even just with um, the, the players themselves, but also if you try and do it through a team context, we are technically ahead of the game. We haven't even had the trade deadline yet. We have no idea what some of these rosters are, are going to look like, like the Trailblazers, the Hawks, the Celtics, some of these teams that are, that are slated to select in the lottery right now. So let's go back and forth, 1 through 14. I'm going to try to be the Matt Penny to Sam Vecini this week. That is that is a, a tough bar for me to live up to. <laughs> I love Matt. I had him on my podcast. He's one of my favorite guests that, that I've had all time on this podcast, absolutely. So, But I'm, I'm going to try my best, Sam. You ready to do this? Let's do it. I'm in. All right. So you being the guest, Sam, you have the first overall pick in the first mock draft that I'm doing over here on draft deeper this year. So go ahead. The floor is yours. Well, uh, I, I was going to say, I, I would love for you to go first. Cause I you just want me to go first. Mine. I, yeah. Well, I just went first on mine. So I feel like I have the rhythms down from going first. So th this right. could be, this could be a fun one for me. If, if uh, you end up going first here, I'll, I'll do it. I will, I will take Jabari Smith with the first overall pick and Sam, I don't know about you. I've been back and forth with this spot on my board all year long. I started with Chet Holmgren in this spot. I guess this is this is the point of the podcast where I, I might sound like Matt Penny just a little bit because I know that he's also very high on Chet Holmgren. But I, I'm ultimately going Jabari Smith here. His floor just seems like such a more solidified four to me than the either two top either the other two top prospects that we talked about in this spot and i know that there are some limitations to jabari smith's game but at the same time when i went back and watched some of the high school film that i did before this year started i was seeing a lot more interesting work finishing down low or maybe putting putting his back to the basket finishing a, a fadeaway shot out of the post where you watch some of those clips and you go okay this is really intriguing for somebody who's 610 about 225 pounds but i didn't know that he was going to be this deadly, deadly, deadly three-point shooter from a set standpoint, let alone making these shots off the dribble or bringing the ball, bringing the ball up the floor in transition, stopping and drilling a three-point shot in everybody's face. His, his shot making around the elbows, I think, is much more pristine. And, and I know some of the finishing numbers would lead you to believe that he's he, he hasn't been the best around the basket this year. But then you do flip on the film and you see some of his finger roll finishes where he looks like a guard taking the ball to the rack. So I, I'm a lot more confident in Jabari Smith, certainly, than I was at the start of the year. And the fact that I didn't know he could do as much as he's shown already on film up to this point 
it's kind of that mystery and that intrigue to where I he, he could have so much more in the bag as he continues to develop through through year one, two, three, four in the NBA, where he reaches a level that I didn't even think possible. So I think that that mystery part of the projection, I think, puts him at number one overall for me over Chet right now. What do you think of the pick? Yeah, this is who I would take it. Number one, uh, it's funny. I'm looking through my messages on Slack now that I have with uh, John Hollinger. And I had Jabari at number one at the very least as of December 12th. So probably a little bit uh, before that. So it's been over a month that I've had Jabari at number one. I haven't really wavered on that. Uh, Everything I've seen from him in terms of a handle, in terms of uh, his shooting is even more advanced than what I thought it was. The handle isn't that advanced yet, but he's shown enough from a transition standpoint where I feel a little bit better about him handling the ball than what I did in uh, his high school tape. At the very least, you have to remember too, this is a kid that just turned 18 in May of last year. He turns 19 in May. Uh, He's probably a little bit behind these guys developmentally like Chet Holmgren. uh, He's got to be damn close to a year uh, younger than Chet, if not like more than a year younger Mm -hmm. than Chet. So when I'm just kind of looking through these guys, I'm trying to figure out, okay, when I put them in an NBA system, how is this going to look? When I put them in NBA spacing, how is this going to look? And with Jabari, you mentioned the finishing. You mentioned, you know, I've kind of brought up the handle. I think that he's right now playing with Walker Kessler, who takes up a ton of space. And that's not to say Walker Kessler is a bad player. I think that by the end of the year, like there's a semi-decent chance that Walker Kessler is talked about as the top 40 guy in the class. Like I'm pretty close to being there, frankly. Uh, It's just not that he's bad. It's that he takes up a lot of space. And that I think is why you see some of the finishing numbers with Jabari, uh, you know, being a little bit lower. There's always a guy there coming over from the weak side to contest. Uh, There's that's why you see not as many flashes of half court handle. There's just a lot less room to operate for Jabari Smith when he's, you know, you've Walker Kessler in the dunker spot and then you have Jabari picking and popping and then, trying to attack off of a closeout there. There's just not space for him to go in and like go right to left and try and drive. Right. And that's not to mm-hmm. say that you know, I think he's the most, you know, technically gifted ball handler in the world to where he could do that stuff. But we've seen enough flashes a in terms of how he can handle the ball in transition and B we've seen these bigger skilled players like a Scotty Barnes, like a Josh Giddy, like a, uh, you know, even like Cade Cunningham to an extent uh, who have struggled to get into the lane in less spaced situations mm-hmm. who once they reach the NBA, those driving lanes are just a little bit bigger. The court is much more well-spaced. They are able to use their length and dexterity to their advantage at a higher level. And I think that we're going to see some of that with Jabari uh, being able to use his length to get to the basket uh, in a straight line in a little bit easier of a manner. So uh, this this is me. I have Jabari Smith at number one as well. I think this is a great pick. 
And he just seems like such a great complimentary piece and, and, and a player who we're much more able to project, in my opinion, fitting on virtually any team that could jump up to get this number one pick more so than some of the other guys at the spot as well. So I think that's definitely a point where I know you've hit on that on your podcast, Sam. I think it's also important to mention again here when we're projecting out number one. So number two, the floor is yours. And now the floor is yours, Sam. Go, go ahead and make the number two selection. <laughs> Yeah, this is one that I've kind of struggled with going back and forth. I, I do have Chet Holmgren at number two. I, I think this is a circumstance where it's going to be wholly dependent upon what team gets this pick. I, you know, for instance, if it's a team that has a center, right? So um, just just off the top of my head, right? If you're talking about Indiana rising up and getting the number two pick, Chet Holmgren's not going to Indiana. Right. I mm-hmm. uh, if you're talking about New Orleans getting the number two pick, look like they just re-signed Jonas to a pretty reasonable extension that I think is going to be movable down the road. Uh you already have Jonas, you already have Zion, and I think the Chet would be a great fit with Zion. But you know, are, are you gonna use your assets on a center as opposed to something else? Uh, Atlanta has Nyeka, Kongwu, and Clint Capella right now. They're in the lottery somehow uh, <laughs> because they've been a disaster this year. So I, I think that it's going to be more hit or miss in terms of what teams need centers and what teams don't need centers. But in the case of Chet Holmgren, I think that the upside with him, if it all comes together and he gets strong enough, if he puts on, if he gets to 220, let's say, uh, let's say 220, 225. I think you're talking about uh, a Chris Bosch level skill set where he's a terrific rim protector, fairly switchable out on the perimeter, maybe not quite as switchable as Chris Bosch, uh, but has some real ball handling and shot creation ability that has lined dormant throughout the course of his career. Uh, you see some of the Uh, shooting ability his shooting has regressed a little bit more to a reasonable level throughout the course of this college basketball season he's really tough on the interior he's fearless he doesn't back down from anyone uh the advanced numbers absolutely love him uh you look across the board 69 percent true shooting percentage he's top 50 in the country in defensive rebounding percentage uh obviously top 15 in the country in block rate uh you know Finishes in an exceptionally high clip on the interior, 73%. Uh, has made 39% of his threes so far. It, it just kind of ticks across the board in terms of translatable skills and, and translatable numbers that should translate to the league. Obviously, a lot is going to be dependent on what teams think once they get their hands on him uh, and take a look at him throughout the pre-draft process in, in regard to his frame and in regard to his capacity to put on strength. Uh if he can't do that, I do have some very real concerns. I think he would struggle to play the five in the NBA right now. Uh, he needs to put on 25 pounds to be able to play the five in the NBA consistently. If he can't do that, then I think that this pick gets a little bit more questionable and it, it gets tough. But kind of given all of those factors and given that we don't yet have all of the information on Holmgren's frame, uh, I, I am going to go with him at number two. Uh, while acknowledging that I think this thing is very, very open still. I would agree with everything that you just said. I actually do have a question for you about Chet that I would love some of your insight 
on Sam if you have some, and that would be related to his jump shot. It, it's funny when when you when you see on social media some of the clips that have gotten shared. One in particular over the last few days, where Chet brings the ball up in transition, he stops, he nails the three, and it's a complete swish mate, look, 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 absolute butter coming off of his hands. But overall, in the year. He struggled shooting the ball from the outside. He's 7 of 34 on jump shots overall, 5 of 27 on catch-and-shoot shots. I I don't know, just, just looking looking at the form, I don't necessarily have a good answer as to why he's been so inconsistent shooting the basketball. Like when somebody shared that one clip, they, they put the tagline up, this has to be one of my favorite Chet Holmgren jumpers on the year and I held myself back from tweeting in response. You don't exactly have many made jump shots from Chet to pick from overall this year. So do you have you have any insight as to why you think he may be struggling shooting the ball overall? Well here's what I'd say. You look over his last little while here, basically since uh the Alabama game, right? He went mm -hmm. two for four from three against Merrimack, three for five from three against Northern Arizona, one for three against Texas Tech. Uh Made a three against Pepperdine, one for two, two for three against BYU, one for two against Santa Clara. Uh, throughout that time, he's basically made most of his free throws. I mean, he's at 72% on the season. I would venture he's at 80% right around that range uh, since that Alabama game ended. Uh, look, it's it's a little bit bizarre. I can't really tell you why that. <laughs> and you're, you're particularly talking, I would imagine, about half-court jumpers. Right. Yep. Like that, yep. that's the, that, that's the big differentiator here. He's made a lot of trailer threes. Uh, it's kind of been where he's, you know, made his bread and butter as the jump shooter. Right. Like, I think we're talking small samples here at the end of the day. <laughs> like, I, I don't see, I, I don't see any re given the fact that he's five for 27 on half court jumpers, but then you look, he's made like 12 trailer threes as a transition shooter, right? Uh, you look at his transition numbers, he has like 112 effective field goal percentage in transition this year. Like mm -hmm. it's absolutely bonkers. Given his release point, given the fact that he's so tall and so many of these jumpers are going to be open for him uh, coming in transition and, you know, frankly, coming in the half court, I don't see a huge difference for him in terms of the way that it's going to translate uh, on half court jumpers versus transition trailer jumpers. Right. Uh, I, I just think that these are open shots for him almost regardless, especially given his shot selection, like Chet Holmgren is never going to be some movement shooter, right? Like yeah. I don't think that you're going to run him off of actions necessarily. Like you're, you're not going to use him like, um, like a Jabari, like I think you could use Jabari Smith coming off of actions, yep. right? Or, you know, you're not going to use him like a Kelly Olenek coming off of like th these crazy like flare actions, right? Like you might use him as a pick and pop guy. You're going to use him as a trailer guy. And then you're going to allow him to run dribble handoffs. You're going to get into your offense that way, right? So look, I I'm a little bit more willing to suspend disbelief on the catch and shoot half court numbers, given that the transition numbers uh, on jumpers have been so, so strong this year. Uh, you know, maybe you could make a case that he's better with his momentum going forward, whereas in half court, his momentum, you know, isn't necessarily often going forward. But th that's stuff that's like very eminently fixable, I think. So I'm, I'm less worried than I was early on this year with Chet's jumper. 
And I think that that's definitely one of the things that points, if he didn't already have a high enough ceiling with everything else that he does on the floor, how hyper-efficient he is virtually everywhere else. If he really starts nailing jumpers, even those those simple pick-and-pop type shots in, in, in higher volume and higher efficiency like you outlined, Sam, that definitely points his arrow straight up to the sky and is a reason, a big reason why I, I agree with you. I think I'm still buying it long-term and why I think he's absolutely still in the conversation for number one. But there's a third player who we would all probably say should still technically be in the conversation for, at the very least, number two. Some people might still have him number one overall, and I think with the third pick, that's where I'm going to go. I'm going to go with Paolo Bencaro, and I've seen on social media some people want to sour on him a little bit because they don't see this dominant offensive player that I think he was once pegged at from a scoring perspective, although I would argue and say, well, he is still shooting almost 51% from the field. He is shooting 34% from three and 76% from the line. So those are good percentages. He just comes off, he comes off at times. I think some of the concerns that I had about him preseason have bore themselves out to an extent. He doesn't attack nearly as often as I think we would want him to. He's not always as aggressive, I think, as we would want him to. Um, and that definitely holds him back a little bit. He settles for some of these mid-range jumpers where you just watch him take the shot and you can kind of put it together that that shot's not going in. Why did he take it? I think he's a little reluctant to attack the basket at times when he shouldn't be. He's 6'10", 250 pounds. But you do look at somebody who could one day be more of a three-level scorer in the NBA. You look at his size. He's not... He's not the most vertical athlete in the world, but he's not hes not a bad athlete. I think he's, he's a good athlete by NBA standards. And he's not as bad defensively as some other people would probably want to peg him as. And I believe that you're kind of in the same camp with, with a lot of those insights, Sam. So that's why I'm going to take him with number three overall. What are some of your thoughts on, on Paolo at this point? Yeah, I really like Paolo. I agree with you that his defense is probably a bit underrated in terms of like, I I think I see people like sometimes call him a non-defender and he's definitely not that like he is reactive. I do think that he tends to be in the right place. I have some questions about what position does he defend, right? Like, is he a small ball five at the end of games? Is he more of a four? Uh, Look, I, I don't know the answer to that yet. And, and I think that that's why I ultimately I do have him at number three. I came into the year with Paulo at number one. I love his craft off the bounce. I think that he is as advanced a player as I have seen as a, is a mismatch nightmare who knows how to get his defender off balance in the mid post and can create a shot basically out of nothing. I, I agree with you that I would like to see him be a bit more aggressive. Uh, and we've seen that, I think, over the course of three of his last four games. I would say the Miami game uh, in the New Year's, the one that stands out as him not being aggressive enough. But you look at the Georgia Tech game, he got to the foul line 16 times, right? You look at the Wake Forest game, he didn't get to the line at all in that game. But you go back and you watch, like, he came out with a purpose. He came out with intensity. He just sealed off in the post constantly. He was trying to attack, trying to aggressively create his position. You look at the NC State game, uh, it was a little bit different. I thought that they tried to use him a little bit more as a playmaker and like as a hub 
at times in the half court whenever they needed to. That game was such a transition up and down shit show uh, because that's kind of how NC State plays <laughs> because they have to because they don't really defend. Um, that we didn't get as much of a chance to see that, but he had four assists in that game. Uh, he got to the line, I think, like seven or eight times. Uh, he really, really, I thought, attacked the offensive glass. I think he only had a couple of offensive rebounds that he got credit for. But when I was logging, like, he had a few little tip-outs that, you know, maybe it was him, maybe it was Mark Williams. They got their hand on it, right? Like, Mark was phenomenal in that game. Um, I, I don't know if you're going to take Mark Williams in this thing, but I really, really <laughs> like Mark Williams. I, I can't get to the point where I take him in the lottery, but, like, I think Mark Williams is really good. Um, he, Mark and, Williams has a lot of fans in, in, in our No Ceilings Collective, so you you would fit right in with us, my my friend. But go but go ahead. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, but again, I think that people look at the lack of attacking, the lack of uh, time spent at the rim, and I do think that is a reflection of playing on a condensed court with a guy who's seven foot with a seven foot six wingspan, who is essentially just a pick and roll roll guy or a you know, post up big man or a dunker spot guy in Mark Williams. And that's why you often end up see seeing Paulo settle a little bit for these jumpers. Uh, look right now, I, I think that his shot selection could stand to be a, a bit more efficient. I guess I would say like he is he has a 59 true shooting percentage like it's not like it's been a problem but you can see how this shot profile would turn into one yeah. uh you have to hope that as he gets to the league and uh, continues to develop his game he's more willing to get to the basket uh, a little bit more comfortably but I, I think i project that so another common criticism that's been said about uh, Apollo before we get to the fourth pick is regarding his three-point shooting and he's at 34 percent I don't think he needs to be this high volume 37 38 percent three-point shooter to get closer to what his ceiling could be as a half-court score I think as long as he's enough of a threat to hit open shots off the catch and he can hit a transition three um, and in those situations, kind of like what we've seen on film multiple times, particularly the Gonzaga game. I think that's that's good enough for me, and I think better shot selection and more development overall heading towards the basket in the half court would be more of what I want to see from Paulo versus becoming more of this long-range gunner. What, what do you think about his three-point shot, and what, what do you want to see from him there from an evaluation standpoint? be honest like I, i'm not super worried about the shooting i know that he's at 34 percent, and you look at his numbers particularly against good teams they haven't been awesome as a shooter uh you look back at his high school tape i mean you see some just fucking ridiculous stuff like, you know <laughs> right to left left to right crossover step back to the right just like cash right you know he can get a step back going toward his left and it like step back fadeaways from the mid post you know, maybe I'm like looking at this the wrong way in terms of, you know, maybe he's like a, maybe he's like a Derek Williams or something like that. Like, I think that that's the common concern, right? Uh, that he is, you know, just like kind of an undersized, you know, power athlete that uh, isn't, isn't good enough defensively. But Paulo is, uh, in my opinion, going to be good enough as a skill player and in terms of his craft 
to where he's going to be able to kind of overcome a lot of these like kind of mismatch uh, concerns and questions. Like, I think he's actually, he's six foot 10, he's 250 pounds and has the requisite skill level to not just be like a college mismatch, but I think this guy's like an NBA mismatch Mm -hmm. because of the strength size uh, and touch combination. In addition to all of the dexterity he has off the bounce, I have gotten to the point where uh, I, I know that, you know, some people don't love this as an evaluation thing, but like, I think guys just get better as shooters as long as they show uh, some level of you know, balance and touch. And, and Paulo has hit 76% from the foul line. He's pretty consistently been a good free throw shooter throughout the course of his career. Uh, he's hit 34% from three this year. He's very comfortable shooting. I think he's up around like, uh, at least one made three per game. He's taking three or four per game. Like, I- I'm I- I'm fine with where Apollo is as a shooter. I would say. So pick number four, Sam, I will say that this gets a lot better in your favor doing this exercise this way versus trying to abide by uh, throwing the teams in here because if we had went by my tankathon order, it would have been the San Antonio Spurs up <laughs> at number four. And I'm not sure there's a clean-cut fit amongst the guys that that we have left for San Antonio this high in the draft. So taking that out of context, um, go ahead with number four, Sam. Lead lead us off. Who you got? You know what, though? San Antonio has proven time and again that they just take the best player, right? Like they they, they don't worry about any of that. They just take the guy that they think has the best chance to be an impact player or be a star. me, Jaden Ivey's the guy that has the best chance of this remaining group to be a star. Uh, he isn't like elite of the elite athlete, right? Like he isn't Ja Morant. He isn't Derek Rose when he was younger. Mm-hmm. He is just the level below though, in terms of athleticism, explosiveness, uh, you know, transitioning that explosiveness into power and contact balance around the rim. Uh I've long been a proponent of his shooting. You look back through his high school percentages, he was a consistent 40% three-point shooter uh, during his time at La Lumiere, and I forget off the top of my head what the first school was. Um, I think it might have been like Marion or something in Indiana. Um, like 40, I don't know how the game today affected the percentages. I know he didn't shoot super well against Illinois, but he's up around 40% from three uh, this year on four attempts per game. And you look at the way that his transition passing ability and his uh, half court passing ability, not necessarily out of ball screens, but uh, whenever he's asked to run like second side actions as a reactive player, uh, his live dribble passing has really, really improved this year. Like he has much more control over the ball where I'm a little bit worried is I think that we're going to see some of the same, like, you know, issues that Jalen Suggs had early in his career, just running ball screens, right? Like Aiden Ivy always plays next to a point guard. He doesn't bring the ball off the court every time. I think that he doesn't have the same number of reps just running ball screens that someone like Cade Cunningham had coming in last year, right? Or, you know, I'm trying to think of an example in this year's draft. Uh, you know, he, he, he even someone like, this is a ridiculous name, but I was just like thinking about uh, <laughs> Michigan State earlier. Like, I don't think this guy's an NBA draft prospect, but like Tyson Walker at Michigan State, like the guy's been 
freaking running ball screens like throughout the entire course of his life, essentially. I don't think Jaden Ivey's been doing that. So I think that it's going to take some time for him to develop all of the reads to know exactly where he needs to go at all times. That's fine. Uh, I'm willing to take the ride with him on that because I think the athletic upside is so real with Jaden Ivey that it's just not, it's worth the, it is worth the, uh, the juice is worth the squeeze maybe is the way to put it. Like the developmental time you're gonna have to put into Jaden Ivey, like that's worth it to me in order to take a chance on the athletic upside that he has to be a top 10 point guard, in my opinion, in the NBA. My biggest criticism with him up to this point and a lot more of it took shape today as I was watching um, some of the Purdue-Illinois game is his ball screen defense is pretty poor. He's rated out. I, I actually looked this up earlier. He's in the fifth percentile in terms of defending the ball handler and pick and roll in the half court. That's not, that's not great. Um, he, he always seems like he's completely unaware of the screen when he actually bumps into somebody. It's like, oh, hey, I didn't know you were there. And it, it, he doesn't fight through screens really well. That That's just an area of concern that I have where you know NBA teams are going to figure that out pretty quickly. And they're going to put him into those situations and they're going to attack him there to death. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be as concerned about that. Maybe some of the concerns are warranted. What do you think about him defensively, Sam? I don't think that his technique is particularly good. I don't think his awareness is awesome. Uh, I will say like, I don't use any of the synergy defensive numbers. It's not to say that, like synergy is a bad service. I love synergy. I, I love the company. I am such an enormous fan of the work that they put out. Um, I, I literally could not do my job without synergy. I just don't think that uh, the defensive numbers are really uh, the, the defensive numbers. They're contextless yeah. uh, in a way that I think makes makes them not really worth much. Um, in the case of Ivy, again, I think that you can go back and you can look through all of these younger guys uh, throughout their early careers uh, that have the athletic tools that Jaden Ivy does, but just weren't good defensively. Like Anthony Edwards was like an abomination defensively <laughs> at uh, Georgia, right? Like he was terrible. Uh, he is at least gotten to the point where he's passable on the ball. Now uh, he has improved a lot defensively over the course of just a year and a half in the NBA, uh, just by locking in on that end. Like he still lapses off the ball. And I think that that's like a concern that people don't talk about enough with him But on the ball. Like he's pretty effective. Like you, you can't like trying, you're not trying to get a switch onto Anthony Edwards. Right. Yeah, I think it'll be the same with Jaden Ivy. Like you're you're not going to be trying to get a switch on to Jaden Ivy defensively uh, in the NBA. Like he's too athletic and too uh, he has enough strength to where I don't think it's like going to truly be a mismatch come playoff time. Like you might see some you know, iffy numbers during the NBA regular season with him defensively where if his effort and intensity isn't there this, this, this stuff is though why i do think jalen suggs is a better prospect than Jaden ivy yeah uh, same level of like power and you know explosiveness intersection but suggs was a monster defender last year and that's translated to the nba immediately um 
you could maybe make a case Jaden Ives is a better shooter. They have similar um, profiles in terms of not necessarily being polished in ball screens yet, but Jalen Suggs is just like a monster defender. He gives an incredible amount of effort. Whereas Jaden Ivey, it's going to take some time. He's not going to be like, you know, a, a top 10 guard defender in the league. Like I think Jalen Suggs will be eventually. Um, but offensively, I, I think that there is pretty similar upside uh, between Ivy and Suggs. Like I, I am a big Jaden Ivey believer. I love Suggs. I still love Suggs. If anybody out there is selling Suggs stock because of some mishaps in the NBA up to this point, he's only a rookie. I will take all of the stock that you're selling. I will gladly buy it. But so let's move on to pick number five. This would be my selection. I'm going to go with Johnny Davis, someone who, when you did your mock with Matt, he was already off the board by this point. And there, there are certainly some criticisms that you can have about Johnny Davis's game, but he's been so spectacular in so many big-time situations this year. He's been a consistent scorer of the basketball. He really only has had about two to three real quote-unquote stinkers in terms of shooting numbers this year. Every other game, he's been good to great to, at times, spectacular. And the type of leadership that, that you can tell he, he clearly exemplifies on the court. I absolutely love what he brings to his team in that aspect. And he just gives off this vibe where his teammates can look around and they can look at him and they say, well, we have a chance to win this game and we have a chance to potentially dominate the opponent because we have that guy. And you can just tell from watching Wisconsin earlier in the year up to how they're playing now this team is just so much more connected offensively. They're so much more confident in themselves. And I'm going to attribute a lot of that to Johnny Davis being as, as great as he's been, quite frankly, this, this entire year. He rates out in a number of categories, average to very good to excellent on synergy. He has a diverse shot profile. He's certainly had a lot of room to freely experiment within that offense. He's been great out of pick and roll play. His jump shooting is a little bit of a mixed bag, depending on what type of attempts you want to look at. But I think his craft and scoring in the mid-range overall has been superb. And he's that type of tough shot maker at the guard spot that I think that I would want to bet on with the top five pick. And a lot of what I talked about is reason why I'm not going to rule him out potentially climbing any higher in this draft. although. I think it's going to be tough for him to enter into the top three type of conversation. I would say that nothing is impossible, especially if Johnny Davis keeps helping his team win a lot of high-level games in the Big Ten and possibly making a run in the NCAA tournament. So I know that you do have a few concerns, Sam, but I think you've also come around to Johnny Davis being a top five type of talent for you. What are your thoughts on Johnny Davis this year? Yeah, so th this is a tear break for me. Um, I, I actually do have Jaden Ivey um, in a level above Johnny Davis, and I understand that you know Johnny Davis went for thirty-seven and fourteen against <laughs> Purdue, and you know this, that, and the other thing, right? Like I, I get it, but my my concerns with Johnny Davis, and look, like let's talk about the mentality stuff. Like this is why I buy him 
as yes. a lottery pick, right? Like he is a killer. Like that dude is calm. He's cool. He's collected. He's the kind of dude that you buy, uh, continuing to improve his game first and foremost, especially given that we have proof of it now from his freshman to his sophomore year from frankly, like his sophomore year in high school up until his sophomore year in <laughs> college, right? Like he's gotten better every single year of his career at this point, it's been a steady upward climb. So you look at that stuff. I think that all of the signs are there that this is real. Now, I think that he is better than a, I think he's shooting like 32, 33 from three right now, something yep. like that. And I think he's a better shooter than that. I think he takes a ton of tough shots, right? It's just kind of what it is. Having said that right now, what he is, is he's a tough shot maker who is six foot five has like enough strength to not be a liability in switches I mean, look, like, I, I don't think that looks like Luka Doncic, LeBron James, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, like, I don't think he's bothering those guys defensively either. He, he's just four inches smaller than they are. And that's okay. Like, it, there are a lot of guys that are six foot five in the NBA, six foot four, six foot five, whatever he is, uh, and get by. But he's not Devin Booker. I, I, I agree yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I think that you know Devin Booker is just much bigger than he is. Like it, it's more, it's more like less skilled shooter Bradley Beal almost to me. Um, you know that that's fine, I guess. But like I think he's like a starting two guard. I, I guess is what I would say. Like I, I, I trust him to be a secondary ball handler. I trust him to make tough shots. I trust him uh, to not be a liability defensively. I think he has a good attitude. Uh, like I, or or any of those skills. Like you would. What is his high level skill? Like what? What is like Jaden Ivy is genuinely an elite athlete, right? Like by the point guard position, he is not like in the John Morant class, but he's just the level below, right? Uh, what is Johnny Davis's elite skill? And th that's not a bad thing. I, I just like, I'm trying to figure out in my brain what the role is. And to me, it's like secondary ball handler, makes tough shots, um, maybe can be a third or fourth scorer on an NBA team, maybe third scorer on an NBA team plays average defense and averages, you know, three or four assists per game. And that guy makes a hundred million dollars in the NBA and is super valuable. I, I'm just, I'm trying to navigate my thoughts, I guess, on Johnny Davis. Which is absolutely fair. And it comes back to some of what you and Seth Partnow talked about on another recent episode of your podcast, where if you're, tr if you're betting on this type of player to succeed in the NBA, it's just not as sure of, or it's a much harder bet to make with the type of diet that Johnny Davis is living off of in, in terms of his shot making. Like when you talk about what might be his surefire skill in the, in the league versus somebody like Jay Nivey, I don't love that Jay Nivey has had to play off the ball as much as he has after due, but at the same time, he's still proven that he's a much more capable off-ball player, if not based purely on his, his speed and his ability to get downhill or, or cut and cause and wreak chaos both in transition as well as even in – in the half court, that's a much more easier bet to make for him to translate into whatever NBA situation he gets thrown into than somebody who at this point is 
living, feasting with the ball in his hands, getting to do virtually whatever he wants from Wisconsin because a lot of his other teammates from an offensive standpoint aren't that great around him. I completely understand the skepticism with wanting to immediately crown him as like this top five guy, or maybe, maybe said, maybe it's just that nobody else below him is necessarily blowing us away. Is it which, which, which is it? That's it. I think that's it entirely. (laughs) Like nobody else is like completely stood up and been like, I am the top five pick. And and the guy that I'm going to take next, like, I, I think that that might, I think he might be the guy that does it eventually, but like, I feel fucking terrible taking him at number six. (laughs) <laughs> who, who are you going to take at number six? Because I'm I I I'm curious. I I might know, but maybe not. Yeah, look, I, I, taking the swing on AJ Griffin. And there we go. I feel bad about it. Like I, I don't feel good about it. So like, so why 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 do you feel bad about it though? Is it is it is it the the injury concerns now, and maybe you're you're not comfortable with taking him this high because of some of those concerns? Is it some things that you still see on the court? What what makes you feel bad about it? Yeah, it's it's injury concerns and general inconsistency. Like you watch the NC State game. I mean, he was out there getting cardio. Like he wasn't <laughs> he wasn't like part of the game. And that's fine, right? But like at number six, like I'd prefer that my number six overall pick doesn't have games, you know, where he has three points, two rebounds, two assists in twenty-seven minutes, or like he did against Elon where he had five points, five rebounds and two assists, right? Like um, he's been over the course of the last, what, let's say, let's say month, I guess, basically since the Ohio state game. And then after there, what I believe I couldn't, I can't remember if it was a like little mini COVID pause or if they had finals uh, like, you know, Duke always does take some time off like right mm-hmm. in December. But now, since then, 19 point, points against South Carolina State, 11 points against Appalachian State, the five-point Elon game, and then 13 against Virginia Tech, 12 against Georgia Tech, 10 against Miami, 22 against Wake Forest. The Wake Forest game is like the real coming out party where you see all of the skills on display, right? Like you see yep. real shot making, you see real shot creation skill. He had a play against NC State then where – I just shit on the NC state game for a little while here, but like (laughs) he had a flash, you know, in the NC state game where they give him the ball with like seven seconds left on the shot clock. He like dribbles, right? uh, Like one pound dribble back to his left sidestep, step back, like pull up jumper that looks pretty fluid. And you're just like, Oh, like that's, that that's something he can do, and like that's a real skill set that is translatable to the next level. That that kind of gives him, I think, a bit of a different upside than some of these other wings that are remaining on the board. Um, if that shot falls, like he missed the shot, but I, I don't think that any of us. I, I mean, look, like I have some concerns about AJ Griffin as a shooter, but like I'm not. I think he's going to shoot at least off the catch. Like we see uh, enough evidence of that thus far. I think that like as a shooter off the catch, he's probably going to be fine. So I just guess that I would like to see more consistency from a top six pick than what we've seen from AJ Griffin. And I know he was hurt in the early season. I know that like it took him some time to get to a hundred percent, but even since he's been like in the lineup, we're talking about a guy that like his breakout games in the ACC were 
13 points, 12 points, 10 points. As Johnny Davis's were like 35 and, you know, 30 and, you know, great defense against Houston. And, you know, like it's a, it's a different, it's a different level. So I'm taking AJ Griffin. I think the upside is very real. I just think that like, this is, this is one that could go like a number of different directions. So AJ Griffin, I, I love that you said the name and he's somebody who has certainly popped up into this top six, top seven type of conversation in a number of circles. I have a few partners over here at No Ceilings who definitely do have him top five. And in their minds, he is a much shorter bet than I think he is for people in NBA front offices who actually have to live with the potential consequences of taking him this high, which I think right. are definitely some of the reservations that you share, Sam. And I'm glad that you do have some of those reservations and you're careful to outline them on a podcast like this, because these are very real consequences where somebody like me who can just make a big board out of thin air on draft Twitter doesn't necessarily have to live with those repercussions. But if something doesn't work out or he doesn't hit the type of ceiling that he's supposed to by taking in this high, you know, we, we don't have to, to, to live with something like that. We were, we're not necessarily working in an NBA front office. So I, I, I agree with you 100%. I actually thought that you were going to take a swing with somebody who you did take with this very overall pick on your mock draft, you took Ty Ty Washington at number seven. And Ty Ty is somebody who I wasn't 100% sold on coming into the year. I thought that the point guard race was very wide open. I think that he separated himself from the rest of some of those other point guards that we might or might not mention on this podcast, but I think that he's done even a little more than that lately. And and you were definitely excited to talk about him on your, your, your mock draft episode to point out the type of shot making guard that he's been. He's been really efficient from a bunch of different areas on the floor. He's been, he's in the 84th percentile in terms of jump shots overall in the half court, 91st percentile on runners, which we knew that was a very sellable skill of his coming into the year was he had the best floater, I think, out of any of the guys coming in. He's finishing in the 89th percentile around the basket, 88th on catch-and-shoot shots, 79th in terms of jump shots off the dribble. And I love that he's gotten the flash even more pick-and-roll craft of late when he was playing next to Severe Wheeler. Severe Wheeler was obviously the dominant point guard in the lineup, and Ty Ty was playing more exclusively off the ball. But um, at least – Recently, Cal's put him in lineups with Kellen Grady and Davion Mintz next to him, and Ty Ty's been the point guard, the floor general in the group, and he's able to run a lot more 1-5 pick and roll with Oscar Shibway. And when those two other guys next to him are spacing the floor properly and hitting the shots, as we know they're capable of doing, you, you really start to see Ty Ty's game come together, and you can picture him much easier on an NBA floor contributing in a number of areas, but he's just been so efficient with virtually everything that he's done recently. He's giving me a lot more confidence in to potentially go this high in the draft when it actually comes around. Um, how, how, how are you feeling about Ty Ty even since you made some of your proclamations or, or you were excited to talk about him on your podcast? Are you still this high on him? 
Yeah, since then he went for 15 and like four against Vanderbilt and then had the monster like 28 point game where it seemed like yep. he didn't miss against Tennessee. So look, I, I, I've, I am a big fan of Ty Ty Washington as an NBA starter. I, I guess, you know, probably plays the one, but it'll be like more of a, a half primary, half secondary ball handler role next to a bigger wing that hopefully can create his own shot. Like the example I use is putting him in, in Milwaukee, right? Like you put him next to Giannis, you put him next to someone like Drew Holiday, right? Like th that would be ridiculous. He'd be unbelievable in a setting like that, I think. Yep. Um, you even put him in a place like I'm trying to think of a lottery team right now. Um, I think if you put him in New Orleans, it would be very good because you'd have him next to a couple of really good uh, creative forwards in Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram. Uh, and he'd be able to space the floor, attack advantage situations, while also playing all screen actions and uh, finding those guys for open dots and uh, taking advantage of his quick processing ability and read and react game. So uh, I'm a big Ty Ty Washington fan. I think that the way that his game translates to the next level is as a really good starting guard who helps you win games at the end of the day. Like, I don't think he's an awesome defender. I think he'll be at least accountable on that end defensively uh, is a multi-skilled offensive player. And those guys translate. So um, yeah, no, I, I'm very happy uh, that you're, I assume you're taking Ty Ty here at seven. Yes. Right? Yep. Ty Ty, Ty Ty at seven. You know, you know, what's even better about him playing in New Orleans is that he can actually guard his position and he would be the only card in the backcourt who seems like they can actually guard their, their own position That that backcourt defense in New Orleans is, uh, is not great. And I think they would definitely love to see somebody like Ty Ty come in and be able to do what he does on both ends of the floor. Not that he's some lockdown defender, at the point guard position, but he can certainly hold his own. And even when he's put in situations where he has to switch on to a bigger guy or he gets trapped on somebody like, like a big man in the post, like he holds his own, he's strong. And I would just love to see that type of competitive two-way guard somewhere like New Orleans. I think he could absolutely help out a number of teams. Um, I think the New York Knicks have been searching for a point guard for what seems like for forever, the, the Kentucky Knicks connection, I'm sure they would love to see Ty Ty Washington as well. So, yeah, he's my pick, and I think that I, – I didn't expect to, to take him at seven uh, if you would have asked me this question before the season, but given where we're at right now, I, I really love his, his prospects as, as a future NBA starter. We, you and I are in agreement 100%. So do you have pick number eight? Who are you going with? This is just a safe pick. I'm taking Ben Matherin. Uh, D guy plays really well off the catch, uh, both as a three point shooter and as a straight line driver who can stop and pop for those little two foot floaters. who can get all the way to the basket. He's a smart cutter, uh, plays really well off the ball offensively. And then defensively six, six, about a six, eight, six, nine wingspan athletic enough to defend. Um, I don't think he's like a disruptive defensive player, but I think he's good enough to where he won't be a liability. Uh, just a, a solid starting level two guard uh, who will be able to defend, uh, you know, hopefully up to the, you know, smaller fours 
uh, in today's NBA. So yeah, I'm, I'm going Ben Matherin and I will be happy with him at number eight. And I, I feel like this is a safe, uh, non sexy. <laughs> that's, that's honestly, that's probably what a lot of NBA teams are, are hoping to do on draft night with what this landscape is, is, is looking like anyways, he's definitely a top eight guy for me. I have no complaints with that. I think the one guy who has swapped out somebody out of one of those top eight spots, I think at this point, me moving Tai Tai up has meant that I, I'm not quite as high, or at least I'm not on the same bandwagon as a lot of people with Keegan Murray, who I will take at number nine. I, I'm, I don't, I don't love taking him at number nine, Sam. I would have loved to take, um, I would have loved to take, Kendall Brown with this pick. I would have loved to take Patrick Baldwin with this pick, but I think Keegan has proven that he's going to come into the NBA and maybe he's not going to be a star, but he's going to be a contributor in the league, a starter level contributor in the league for likely a long time. He's not going to do anything sexy, but he can finish almost anything you want him to around the basket. He's proven that he can hit open jump shots. He's a capable passer in different half-court situations. He's shown some versatility defending in the front court. I think he's most likely to guard fours in the league. Can he slide down? Can he slide up a position? I would say at this point, at least in the college level, he's shown that he can do that, be a three through, three through five defender. I, I think the jump shot definitely has to be more consistent in the NBA for him to be this theoretical stretch four like everybody's kind of pegged him has. Up to this point, I still have a few questions about that, but just given how he's produced for Iowa this year, I have more confidence in his production more so than anything, even though I could theoretically take more of an upside swing here with somebody like Kendall Brown or Patrick Baldwin. I'm assuming you might answer this question with who you might take at number 10, but what do you feel about Keegan Murray at, at nine? Do, do you think I made the right pick taking him versus some of those other upside swings I could have taken? So I did have Keegan Murray at number nine on my board. Um, I, and uh, here, I'll, I'll just take Kendall Brown at number 10. And there we, we can kind of compare and contrast them, right? So the more I've been thinking about it, the more, like you mentioned, Kendall Brown having more upside than Keegan Murray. And for a long time, I kind of wanted to believe that. And I don't even know that I don't believe it. But Egan has shown just so much more offensively. Like there are possessions where Kendall Brown, like doesn't even look at the basket. It feels yep. like, um, just doesn't have the, uh, doesn't have the ball skills yet and doesn't have the shooting yet to where he can be such an effective, uh, offensive player in the NBA right now. Whereas Keegan, you know, that he's going to step in, you know, he is strong enough athletic enough to be able to create his own shot you know that he can shoot on some level at the very least like i have a couple of questions about how that translates <laughs> to the nba three-point line like it's a bit of like a funky shot that it's like out in front of his face a little bit and like i i just have some like general questions on how that's going to translate um when you move him back to like the 24 foot line as opposed to the 21 foot line Having said that, I am at the point with Keegan Murray where the production is almost impossible to ignore. Yep. 
and while I think that Kendall Brown's defensive upside is just drastically better than what Keegan Murray's is, Keegan Murray's upside offensively, like if if this goes right, like I, the name that I realized that like it's reminiscent of, like there, there is a lot of like Tobias Harris level skills there uh, in terms of if the shooting translates and he's strong and physical enough to be able to take guys like onto that low block uh, well enough without the ball, I think, to where he's a smart enough cutter to where he'll be able to create shots like that. Uh, he's shown enough shooting to where he can be an open three-point corner shooter. And he is good enough as an isolation creator to where um, get, we just haven't seen any of that from Kendall Brown. Like, we have not seen nope. Kendall Brown be able to, like, even do a little bit off the bounce yet. So uh, I agree with you. I, I would take Keegan Murray at number nine right now. And uh, Kendall Brown, like, I've got him at 10. I mean, this was a this was not an easy pick for me, actually. Like, I I really considered another guy here, um, but I'm kind of betting that I'm going to be able to get him at 12. To be honest, <laughs> uh, like I, I kind of played the draft board a little bit here, uh, being um, you know as competitive. The, the ulterior and... motive for getting me to pick first, you son of a gun, Sam. <laughs> well, like, and we're not even competing here either. It's the funny nope. thing. I'm just being like ridiculous. Um, so I just look at it as a situation where I would, uh, in the case of Kendall Brown, I, I am very happy um, to take a flyer on the defensive upside where he is a legit like one through four defender at this point. Yep. Um, I think there is shooting upside. I think that it could come together in time. And I think that his passing acumen is really high level. Like, I don't think he's one of the best passers in the draft, but I think he reacts really well. I think that he reads the play really well. I think that um, he understands where the help is coming from and how to hit the open man. So if the ball handling and the other skills come together, I think he has a real shot. I just, I think he could have still maintained a higher spot right now for us in a mock draft scenario. If he was in a position at Baylor where we weren't just looking at, at the box scores and then flipping on the film to find out that he only took like four or five shot attempts in a game. Like he's just, uh, he, he's just not aggressive offensively, but at the same time, Baylor's also built similar to last year. They're built around shot making guards. And then you have Matthew Meyer in the mix, who's going to take almost every shot that he looks at. Um, and, and then you have obviously some other guys on the inside who are able to grab offensive rebounds and then finish plays from there. So there's just not, as much offensive opportunity for somebody like Kendall Brown to come in and take like 10 or 12 shots per game and really show us more of like what he might still be able to do. Like he had, he had a few flashes towards the very beginning of the year where he took some off the dribble jumpers in the mid range. And he actually looked pretty good in my opinion doing so. It's just, he, he hasn't, he hasn't done it. And I'm assuming you think that scouts are likely going to feel the same way and why, we could bet on him having like top five or top six upside, but maybe why he probably won't go in that range at this point if everything keeps trending on the track that it is. Yeah. Like, I guess that what I would say is like, I look, we we've seen like a couple of like mid range shots, right. We've seen a couple of made threes. But like I, I don't in the flashes where he has like put the ball on the ground. I, I don't see the level of like control there. Right. Like I don't see the level of 
um, like just handle where he's like, he's throwing like crazy live dribble passes, right? Like he's, he's jump stopping, he's making the right read, which is phenomenal, right? Like that's really, really good. And at six foot eight, that's all he needs to do. Like he's going to have a height advantage on a lot of players uh, that come over from the help side and uh, are making high level defensive reads. And then he's able to hit the open man. Uh, if we like, I, I don't think he has control enough over the ball to like even be able to get into like a consistent pull up series right now. So it, it's entirely a bet on tools with yep. Kendall Brown. Like it, it's, it, there, there is, no, and even going back to high school, like this is a guy that just like cut and caught lobs, right? Ran out in transition, and um, you know could handle the ball in transition, but like there, there, that was what he did, right? So I, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't see like the made a couple of jumpers this year, but like I, I don't see the shots where I'm like, oh yeah, like this guy is a guy's like a real creator out there, you know, or even has that upside, even frankly. Well, speaking of bets, I, I think I'm going to take one at, at number 11, probably one of the two riskier propositions that I think scouts would deem as such in this draft right now would be taking Patrick Baldwin at number 11. The other the other would be Jaden Hardy, who I know that you aren't quite as high on anymore as well. He's certainly um, he, he, he hasn't been great for, for the G League United. Thankfully, I get to see them in, in person in about a week and a half here. So I will be curious to see um, what exactly he looks like in person, if he's as big as he is in, in person. And you have some reservations about how big Jaden Hardy actually is. I'm, I'm curious to see a lot of that myself. But Patrick Baldwin would be the other quote-unquote bet that I could make here where a lot of scouts wouldn't feel great about it. I remember when I had Chad Ford on my pod not too long ago, and he was telling me then that a lot of scouts that he talked to didn't even have Patrick Baldwin in like the top 15 range for them anymore. So me taking him at 11 could be a stretch in some people's eyes, but I'm just going to make the simple bet that the situation that he's in right now in Milwaukee, everybody knows it's not great. I think it's borderline putrid in some respects. And I think there's more there's a few weirder things going on with that situation that I'm not going to fully speculate about on air because I don't have enough factual information around the situation but I just think that it it's a little sketchier um the, the than I think some people might want to speculate on openly and it hasn't been great for him it hasn't worked out but I'm still going to bet on the 69 guy who we know can light it up from deep and he has in other situations and other respects and I'm going to bet on the size and the shot-making versatility of Patrick Baldwin, somebody who, even if you look at some of his numbers, he's he's not as terrible, or he hasn't been as terrible as some people want to make it out to be. He just hasn't been this absolute brightest star playing in the Horizon League that I think a lot of people would have liked to see out of like a top five or a top six pick. Where where are you still at on, on Patrick Baldwin, Sam? Yeah, in this range, uh, I had him a couple spots lower. But yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, like most of the NBA folks I've talked to, like they're, they're just like, okay, let's just get him out of Milwaukee and see what he looks like. Right. Yeah. Like, but let's get him to the pre-draft process. Let's see where this goes. Uh, look, I, I don't think that there's anything like sketchy going on in Milwaukee. I think that it's just, he's playing for his dad and playing for a team that is bad. 
right? Like, I think it's kind of, I think that the results here are kind of simple, right? Like mm-hmm. he's playing with guards that I uh, like can barely get the ball across the court whenever they play ball pressure. And that leads to him having to initiate some like from the high post and having to create his own shot. And that's just like not his skill, right? Most of the NBA scouts I talk to, I mean, somewhere between 10 and 20 is the consensus mm-hmm. I've gotten from ball about Baldwin. Like they're not selling completely. They are frustrated with the tape that they've seen. Uh, they're frustrated. I would say with his effort at times uh, or like, Maybe not effort. Maybe that's a rough word. Maybe like competitiveness. Um, he he quit in the Florida game. Like, let's just kind of call it what it was, right? Like there, there are clips that you can go pull where it's just like there's play in transition where he just like gives up on the play. And more so even than like the shot not falling, right? Everyone thinks Pat Baldwin is going to shoot. Like nobody cares that he's shooting 32% from the game, right? <laughs> Like, right. It's not a concern. The concern here is okay, like against Colorado, like he showed multiple like concerning effort plays. Uh against Florida in the second half when Florida just came out and like blitzed their guards, um he showed like some real competitiveness questions. And Look, like you might come at me and say like that's a bit unfair, like he's a teenager. You know what? Like, you know, I'm sure that he will get better at this as he gets older. Like, I'm sure he'll understand that he needs to give more effort. Everyone I talk to is like, he's a fine kid. Like, there's no, like, the background is not going to be a problem here with Pat Baldwin. It's just that, you know what? Like, the tape here, he had three games really to truly showcase what he is capable of um, on the highest level. Uh, against real NBA-ish athletes. It was against Florida, and they lost by 36, and the second half was a disaster. It was against Colorado. Uh, They were not very good in that game. Like, that was at least a game they were semi-competitive in throughout, like, most of the game, which was nice to see. Uh, Didn't play well, but, like, that was fine, right? Uh, And then Rhode Island, which they were just completely non-competitive in again. So... I just like, I'm not, I would like to see Patrick Baldwin out of that Milwaukee situation and we'll see where it goes is where I'm at. I'm very curious with where you're going to go with number 12. Cause now we've entered, if it wasn't already open before it, it, it sure as hell is open. Now there is one name. Um, I, I don't know if you're going to take him or not, who was higher than this point on the last big board that I did who has fallen. I know that he's fallen. I just have not known what the hell to do with him all year. So I would probably take him after your pick if you don't pick him now, but I'm curious where you're going with number 12. I'm going to take Oshai Akbaji. Um, wow. I, that, that is not who I was expecting, but the floor is yours. Yeah. Th- this is kind of why I think, like I knew that like there was no chance that like people were going to take him. Um, Watch the Iowa State game yesterday from earlier this week. He is automatic off the catch from three. Like, he is absolutely automatic. If you don't make him relocate off the bounce, he's going to make the shot. The mechanics are too clean. They're too simple. They're too pure. Like, the ball is going in. He's going to be an awesome floor spacer. On top of that, 
go and you watch what he did throughout a big portion of that game to Isaiah Brockington. Like he made Isaiah Brockington's life absolutely miserable when he was guarding him. And oh, by the way, like Kansas is out, has him out there switching. He's communicating switches on the perimeter for them defensively. He is going to be a very, very good defensive player in the NBA. He's 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan. He's 215 pounds. He's strong. Starting to create more off the bounce. He had an awesome play where he caught the ball or he brought the ball up the court, dribbled left, X bun to his right and made like a 16 foot elbow jumper, uh, which is like shit that like he couldn't do last year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am a big believer that he is a starting two guard in the NBA. And I like, I I think that we're overthinking it on some level with him. Most NBA teams, by the way, that I talk to are, I'm, this is the higher end him, but like it's, it's, I'd say 12 to 20. I talked to teams like it's something like that for him. So I just, I think that we're drastically overthinking the Ochagbaji thing based off of uh, his age and his lack of assist numbers, maybe, I guess. But everything else looks like it's going to translate at a high level. So that's probably the only place where I'd go is that there were, there was a lot of common criticism about the Indiana Pacers taking Chris Duarte where they did. And he was he, he was even older than Abaji, which is a fair point to throw in there. But Duarte, I mean, you, you watched him. You've seen what he's done in his rookie year. But even going back and flipping through some of what he did in Summer League when they essentially had him do literally everything you could possibly do on off, on offense in terms of from, like from an initiation standpoint. And I don't know if I would trust Ochai to do maybe half of what Duarte is capable of on some levels. And now we're I, I agree about with you. This high. But I think, but I think oh. Chris is a better prospect. I just want to say that. Like, I think Duarte okay. is a better prospect. But maybe what everything that you outlined, though, Sam, maybe it's just because we are literally that uneasy about everyone else. And once again, that's the answer for why you would take Agbaji this high is that you're just sold on him being a starter in the NBA. And we might not be able to say that about a lot of the other guys below him. I'm assuming that's fair to say once again. Yeah. And really the defense is good. Like I was, I had like, there were people who were calling him like one of the best defenders in the 2021 NBA draft when he was declared. I wasn't quite there on that. Like I, I was like, okay, yeah, he's a good defender. Like he plays well on the ball, but like, I think he gets lost a little bit off the ball. This year, the communication aspect, I think, is the big thing. Like, you watch him communicate switches with his guards and with his um, other forwards. Like, Jalen Wilson, there are times where it looks like Jalen Wilson has, like, no idea what he's supposed to do out there. (laughs) And in the case of Oshai, like, he's constantly talking. He's constantly making sure the teammates know where to go. Like, you watch him with DeWan Harris, like, out on the perimeter with guys, like, they just communicate these things so well. And it's, it's because of him. I think like you, you watch, like he's constantly pointing. He's constantly got his teammates, like knowing where they need to go. He's organizing the action out there. Um, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of everything I've seen from him. I don't think he's Duarte. Like I, I just, you know, want to say that again. Like I, I had Chris like in this range last year, I had him at, you know, number 12, number 13, um, but I think that there's a similar thing here. But by the way, like Chris Duarte was 23 by this point last year. Yep. Ochai is 
21. Like he's yep. a young dude, doesn't turn 22 until the pre-draft process. Like this is a, I, I think we're overthinking it uh, pr- pretty substantially with him. So the name that I was referring to, who I am going to take it number 13, I'm, I'm going to stop the slide for Jalen Duran, And I, I, it's it's funny because I, I don't think that he would slide this far in the draft. Maybe I am wrong about that. I don't I don't talk to as many NBA scouts as 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 you likely do, Sam. But number thirteen, I think at this point you kind of have to make the bet on him with his physical tools. He's six eleven, two fifty. I I understand all the concerns about the motor and how sometimes when it doesn't run hot, he he's not doing much out there on the court. I was a firsthand witness to that when I saw them. Um, play in Brooklyn and first of all men, watching Memphis seems like a like a chore sometimes I'm sure you would you would agree with that in some respects but when, when, when Duran's motor isn't running hot it, it it doesn't look great but when it is when he's actively rolling to the basket when he's actively looking to finish around the basket on offense when he is active on defense and he's not fouling out of the game and he's able to showcase some of the shot blocking prowess that he has, he's averaging over two blocks per game in college. Like there are moments where you look at him, especially when he whips out some of the short roll stuff and you go, this guy is, is an NBA center. It's just about getting it out of him on a consistent basis. And I, 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 if, if he would slide to this point, I'm assuming that would be the main reason why NBA teams wouldn't be in love with him because they don't think that he's going to live up to what is upside could be on a nightly basis. Now, I've never been as high on him to say that, like, the BAM at a bio comp is fair. I've, I've never thought that was fair. I would never compare somebody to BAM at a bio. He's a special, special player. But I, I think given where we're at at this point in the lottery, I think I, I feel like I kind of have to take him at, at 13. Where are you at on Jalen Duran? Yeah, this was the next guy for me. Um Okay. I, I did kind of think that there was some out of bio stuff there in the preseason based off of what I saw in high school and based off of his age as well. I mean, he's still 18 years old. He's still very young. He's just not as twitchy athletically. Like that's mm-hmm. the thing. Like he's nowhere near as good laterally. Um, not as light on his feet is what Bam is. It's more of a load leap athlete. It's fine. Like he's, he's, I think that he's been hurt more by team situation than anyone else in this class. They have no point guard. Like it's, he is like an impossible evaluation because nobody is feeding him the ball in positions that make sense for him. So I'm, I think he's going to be a terrific rim protector in the NBA. Uh, I think he's going to be a good drop coverage defender as he continues to age reason he's a little bit lower for me is that it's going to take some significant developmental resources and I think some significant time, uh, you know, over the course of the next couple of years before he's going to be like a starter caliber player. And to me, I wonder if he's more of like a second draft guy as opposed to like the first team that gets him gets the best out of Jalen Duran. That's a 100% fair point to make and that pretty well sums up where I'm at on, on him as well and why why I, I kind of let the the slide happen as it as it was so 
pick number 14, Sam, there, there are still a, a few interesting names on the board. There's a few swings you could take. I, I will say that if I was drafting in your spot by this point, if he wasn't gone, which he wouldn't have been, I probably would have taken Dyson Daniels at number 14. I don't know where you're going to go, but I'm curious where you are going to go. So the floor is yours. I am going to take Dyson Daniels, actually. Okay. That is, uh, that's my guy. Um, I'm a big Dyson Daniels believer. Uh, obviously, the jumper needs work. And I think that he knows that. Talk to every single NBA person. You talk to anyone who has any connection with G League Ignite. Uh, they can't speak highly enough about the kind of person he is, the kind of work ethic he has, um, the unselfishness that he's displayed in the face of uh, a situation with the Ignite. Where, yeah, he starts at point guard, but like they bring in like Pooh Jetter to get shots. They obviously have the black hole of basketball next to him and Jaden Hardy. Like it's just everything that Dyson Daniels does profiles toward an early NBA rotation level career. Uh, as soon as the jump shot gets fixed, as soon as he starts making 35% of his threes off the catch, Dyson Daniels will enter an NBA rotation. He will be a high, high level defender from the jump. Uh, maybe not like an elite guard defender from the jump, but he has that kind of upside long-term. Uh, and he'll be a high level passer that processes the game exceptionally well and makes high level reads. So again, starter quality player. I feel super good about Dyson Daniels at number 14. I'm very happy to get these guys that are like six foot five to six foot eight who can defend multiple positions, who make high level passing reads, who process the game really well. And uh, who I think at least can eventually become uh, 35 to 38% three point shooters. If I would have taken a swing, on someone at this pick or in this range, the one guy who has continued to rapidly grow on me would be Blake Wesley at Notre Dame as kind of a, a, a parting gift to the fans and the listeners of this podcast. We'll, we'll end on some of your thoughts on him, Sam. What have you thought about his ascent upwards this year? I think that he's someone that would be drastically helped by going back to college for a year, but also, understanding this NBA draft and the openings that there are for players like him to step into, um, it's a real opportunity for him, I think, that he might end up having to take. Uh, he's one of the better half-court creators I've seen in this class among the freshmen, and he has real upside in that capacity. He's six foot five. Uh, he is creativity and reactivity off the bounce to how defenders are playing him is exceptionally high level. And I think he needs to keep working on the shot. Like uh, there is some real concern there as to whether or not he's a good enough shooter. Uh, I think that he also really drastically needs to work on every other part of his game outside of the shot creation, right? Uh, mm -hmm. He turns the ball over a little bit in terms of passing reads. He's a willing passer. Uh, he's not a bad passer. He sees you know, things. It's just that he needs more polish. Uh, he desperately needs more polish defensively. Like <laughs> there's, there's a lot he needs to fix still, but in terms of upside, like it, it's going to be hard for NBA teams to pass on him. I think if he enters the draft to get outside of the lottery. Um, yeah. I mean, look like, 
it's not an accident that like the everyone I took outside of the top four, AJ Griffin, um, Ben Mather and Kendall Brown, Ochai Baji, Dyson Daniels, the five guys I took outside of the top four, are all between six foot five and six foot eight. They're all <laughs> versatile defenders. They're all uh, just guys that I think will eventually step into an NBA rotation. Um, these are the guys that I look for uh, in the draft, and uh, it's it's hard for me to pass them when I see them. Um, I mean, the question that I've been trying to figure out is like, there are guys not on the board, like not considered top, you know, top 20 guys right now, let's say, that are going to rise into that range, right? Like it's going to happen. I've been trying to like figure out, okay, who who are those players? I'm well, kind of wondering. Draft, draft Twitter would tell you Tar Eason, 100%. He'd be the first thing that would come to mind for me. Yeah, uh, look, I, I like I would consider Tari as being someone that's like been identified, right? Like, you know, pe- people like Tari Eason. And I- I'm a little bit less high on the upside. I understand the idea of taking him in the top 20. I think that's reasonable. Like, I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't fight anyone that takes Tari Eason from 15 to 20, right? Like, whatever. Uh, I think he needs to work on the shot. I think he needs to work on how he reads the game in the half court. But the defensive tools are real enough to where it makes sense. Um, and the other two names I'd throw in there would be like Harrison Ingram and Jeremy Suhan would probably be the other two guys or, or either of them who you were about to mention. No, again, the, those guys like have been identified, I think. Like Harrison Ingram is a five-star prospect. Jeremy Sohan, you know, has the weird developmental path, obviously. Uh, he has a chance for sure. Like Jeremy could absolutely uh, be that guy wondering if one of them is Colby Jones of Xavier. I okay. he has been really, really good of late. I, you look at his last game against Creighton. Uh, he had 16 and nine with a couple of assists, a couple steals uh, was not very good in the previous two games against Villanova and Butler, but right before their weird COVID stoppage, uh, he was starting to come on like in a pretty real way. He had like 11 and eight against Marquette. He had 14 against ball state. He was the best player on the court when they played Oklahoma state in December. Um, I thought he was really good against Iowa state. Like I thought he was really good against Kent state. Like they're, uh, if they can make a run, I wonder if we see Colby Jones's name come up quite a bit. He's still 19 years old. Uh, you know, very talented player. He just needs to really work on the jumper. I mean, trying to find the other guys is tough. Like, I mean, like I've seen some people bring up, um, up EJ Liddell is like a late riser. I I haven't gotten that from NBA teams yet. Like that's like maybe Malachi Branham can be a late riser. Speaking of Ohio state, right. Like, um, his really come on of late, but you like watch the Penn state game and he goes like one for seven from the field. Right. So, um, the, the other guy that I want to bring up is a guy that I identified in the preseason and I can't get any other NBA teams to back me on this. Uh, but this team is 14 and two. They have not lost since November 18th. And this guy has been the best player in his league this year it is Hyunjin Lee out of oh, Davidson. Oh my God. Is, no. Oh man. Oh, so, so you know, what's really funny about him before, before you kind of you give your piece on him is that on our no ceilings board, we do, we do a composite big board and based off of everybody else ranking him, I believe he sits at 25th 
on our composite big board. I didn't even have him on my top 30. And I have everybody telling me like, dude, if this guy was playing at like Gonzaga or somewhere else, he would definitely be like a top 20 guy in the draft. And I've been, everyone on my team is telling me I'm sleeping so hard on him. So please also enlighten me on why I'm sleeping on him. I mean, he's a shooter in the class. Like it, it kind of just comes down to that. He's six foot seven. He's made 42% of his threes so far this year on great volume. Like you look at his, he's taking like seven threes a game, six threes a game. Uh, he is a 50, 40, 90% shooter last year. So we have a long track record of being a shooter. He's a movement shooter who consistently knocks down shots. Uh, he makes high level passing reads. Big question is on defense. How does he hold up? I have no idea. I, I don't know if he can. <laughs> but uh, you're six foot seven and you can make shots off movement like he can. You're gonna get elite, you're gonna get high, high level looks. And the thing that I, I will I, I will say, the reason that I haven't quite completely jumped in and why I'm still in the range that I was in the preseason and have him at like you know 25 to 40 is San Francisco really concerned me when they just threw Jamari Bouye on him and he couldn't really do anything with him. So I wonder if NBA teams would just play him small and there wouldn't really be any sort of like recourse where he'd be able to stop it. Like, does he have enough game to just like rise up and shoot over the top? I don't know yet, but I am a, I am a believer in him. Uh, being a really, really high-level player throughout the process. So we 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 came to the point where we hit the Young Jung Lee propaganda. We did not hit the Josh Minot propaganda. I I I will I will say his name for our good friend Matt Penny. I'll say it for him that that Josh Minot always always a name that I'm happy to, to talk about and flag. Here's one name that I would like to look like. I don't, I'll be honest. Like I don't really pay attention to draft Twitter just more for my own benefit in terms of like not having thoughts like infiltrate my brain. Right. <laughs> um, one name that like people have told me that people love and like that I consistently get in my mentions is Jabari Walker. And can you give me like the Jabari Walker pitch? Cause that's just one guy that I really don't see it with. I can't. I can't give you the Jabari Walker pitch. He he hasn't been a part of my top 30 at all so far this process. There are people on draft Twitter who have him as like a top 20 player. And I think a lot of their selling basis is around his potential defensive versatility, which to his credit, he's been in a number of games this year and he's played defense against some good players, but offensively, I'm assuming I would have a lot of the similar concerns as you, Sam, where I just, I don't know what he is offensively like everyone's projecting him as this plus shooter and the numbers wouldn't say so I go and I watch him on tape and I don't love his jump shot I don't think he's some awesomely versatile shooter and he doesn't stand out to me enough offensively to the point where I'm like yeah I'm I'm all in this guy's like a top 25 guy in in, in this draft class I'm assuming your concerns come from the same spot I would say even more than that. Like, I think he might be able to shoot at some point. Like he might end up as like a 37% shooter. Like I, I, I can get there. It's more the processing stuff. Like 
I don't think that he reads the floor well on offense. Like, I, I don't think like he knows where to space to. I don't think he passes well. I think he turns the ball over a lot. I don't think he has like the skill level to like escape when he gets trapped. I don't think that like uh, he, he recognizes the play well enough, I, I guess is how I would phrase it. And yeah, he's a great rebounder and he, so like people bring up the defensive versatility stuff too. Like I think he's pretty stiff actually when I mm-hmm. watch him. Like I worry how that would work in space defensively against like the best guards. Uh, I'm I don't I don't know. I'm I'm like not as I get it as a second round flyer, but like I'm not as like this is me. This is like I'm tr- I'm trying to like think of the names that like it's just hard to be like a six foot eight non-creator questionable shooter i guess is is kind of where i'm coming from have any of max christie or bryce mcgowan's or uzman diang or Payne watson have you come around to any of them as potentially being late first round flyers yet or are you still in the same camp that i've generally been in of these guys should probably go back to school um i think they should all go I mean, look, like I assume Usman Diang is coming out. Like, I mean, he's here. Well, he's he's playing for the breakers. Yeah. Yeah. um, Yeah. I think that all three of those guys should go back. Look, I'd be surprised if they all went back. Um, I I think Max Christie is the guy most likely to go back based off the information I've gotten, Mm -hmm. but I I don't think any decisions are made there. Like it's, we'll see. Right. Um, I haven't been like to me, Bryce McGowan's is like a second draft guy. Um, no, Peyton Watson's a second draft guy. Peyton Watson, like a hundred percent needs to go back to college. <laughs> um, you brought up Michigan state. Like I, I do just want to bring up the name Gabe Brown as well. Yes. I just uh, wrote about him. I literally have a section on him in the column that I put out the morning dunk. I do that every Monday, but I, he was in this week's edition of the morning dunk as as somebody to flag. Give me your thoughts, please. Yeah, look, I I think he's a second round pick, uh, but I think he's like a potential guarantee second round pick, um, or at least at the very least, like a priority two way. Um, The only reason I bring him up is we were talking about Max Christie, Um, six foot eight elite level athlete for one of these, you know, three and D guys. I think he needs to improve defensively. I think he needs to improve uh, his passing and playmaking and his ability to read basketball. But he is six foot eight. He's an elite athlete and is a consistent 40% three point shooter. Like, I, I don't think that anything more needs to really be pitched, right? No, I would, I would agree with that as well. And I just think that, especially when you try and look through the lens, and this is, I, I, I loved your redraft podcast that you just did with Seth Partnow, another, another friend of this program. Um, how you guys were redrafting and evaluating through a playoff type of lens. And if these guys are going to be a part of a rotation for a really good team, what are the things that have to break for those podcasts, uh, for those prospects? And what do they have to bring to the table to be a part of a rotation like that? And when you start looking at, you know, somebody like a Gabe Brown, I think he would stick out more so in that type of conversation than some of the other flyers you could take in the second round, despite him being a little bit quote unquote on the older side for all the ages out there, that doesn't necessarily matter to me. And that's why I think that Gabe Brown is absolutely somebody to mention in, in the second round for this draft. 
what though like he's another one i will mention like doesn't turn 22 until uh, i think like you know late this season i don't i don't know the exact date but like it's late he's younger for the class i know that well sam this has been one hell of a podcast we touched on so many more names that i had originally planned on saying words on but I'm I'm humbled and I'm gracious that you wanted to to take the time to not only be on this podcast but even give me a little bit of time to shoot <laughs> shoot the shit on some guys after the lottery portion of, of the mock draft. So I can't I can't thank you enough for wanting to be on again today. Truly, I've I've followed your work for quite a while now, and I love everything that you do. I read you on the Athletic, the Game Theory podcast. Again, if anybody else isn't subscribed to that, who listens to me? I can't imagine that they wouldn't be, but just in case they aren't, please go subscribe. Seth has, uh, Sam has a great number of guests on his podcast each and every week, including a draft segment each week with Matt Penny. So please go and listen to that. But anything else, Sam, that, that you want to plug for yourself? Oh, I, I really appreciate it. I'm happy to come on, man. This has been fun. Absolutely. So thank you again so much out there, everyone who is listening to this podcast. If you aren't subscribed, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Draft Deeper. You can follow No Ceilings NBA on Twitter. Um, and you can also subscribe to the Substack, noceilings.substack.com. We are pumping out draft work every Monday through Friday. We will be having another edition of a mock draft coming out later this week. There are some spicy teams near the top when we did the tankathon for, for that project as well. So definitely make sure to keep an eye out for that and continue listening to this podcast. I have another very special guest planned for later in the week. So stay tuned. And one more time, thank you for helping me get to episode 100. Wouldn't be without the support that everyone out there has shown this podcast since it first started. So thank you again, and I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.